Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, learning sciences, and instructional design. In this episode, we talk about ways to design engaging units that are not just fun, but also educational and supportive of learning. But first, I'd like to introduce my guest, Alessia. Please tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Alessia, and right now I'm a second semester senior mathematics major in the adolescent education program at Adelphi, and I actually have a minor in actuarial science as well. What is that? <laughs> and actuarial science is, simply put, the study and calculation of risk. So typically, you'll find them working with life insurance firms, and they actually calculate the risk of that person needing the life insurance. And once they find those numbers, they send off the information to a financial mathematician who then develops it further. Wow, okay. That sounds pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, it's very intense. Um, I just have it almost as a backup, but teaching is where my heart is. All right, that's good. So what did you think of the reading? So I actually really enjoyed the reading and it brought up a lot of good points and it really made me think about how I can be presenting information one day in my classroom so that it can meet the needs of as many students as possible. But then the question that I raised um, was that I'm not really sure if it is entirely possible that every student can achieve that level of understanding. I know in the text it said um, to make it likely or most likely that every student in the classroom, but I wasn't sure if it's entirely possible that every single student can achieve that. All of these things that we've been reading, understanding by design, universal design, even the Samer model and Bloom's taxonomy, all these are aspirational in the sense that they are things that we should build in and be conscious of. It can be really hard to do all of these at once. I think the idea is that we want to make sure that every student who wants to learn doesn't meet any obstacle due to a poorly designed instructional material that they can't access. I think if there's students who are just unwilling to learn, I think that's a lot harder. So I don't know. That's kind of how I think. Hopefully, there are ways that the instructor can try to recruit interest so that even students who started off reluctant to learn could find their way in. So I think that would be the best case scenario for them. What about you? What do you think? I agree. I think the biggest struggle is when you have students who simply don't want to learn the material, but I do think that it is the teacher's job to kind of make the students care about what they're learning. And it actually ties nicely into the article when they're asked the questions for the two groups of teachers, A and B, when are the students most fully engaged? And then when is the student learning most effective? So they want to make the lessons engaging and educational, but also effective. So I thought that was an interesting concept that they brought up when they brought up the two groups of teachers and they answered the questions and created the Venn diagram and then found what was the same or similar answers between the two questions. And that was what they used to to design their lessons. Um, And I do think that teachers should be trying to make their lessons relatable to the students. And I think in math, especially, it's very hard because a lot of students can't grasp the concept of having math in the outside world because a lot of times they sit there and just say, when am I ever going to use this? So I think showing them that um, specifically for math and making it relatable to their lives is a way to get them engaged. Yeah, what did you think of the examples that they that was listed on uh, page 195? I really like that and I entirely agree with the fact that engaging lesson designs are thought-provoking and fascinating and they really just force the learners to engage with the subject but engage with the subject in a meaningful way. And they mentioned that the material should not be dry, and I agree with that. And unfortunately, I think that people have this misconception that math is boring or that math is impossible and it's hard and people just struggle with it. And I think that the wrong teacher can make any subject seem boring or unable to be understood. 
does mention as well that the work should be interesting and relevant. And I think that if you have a good teacher who's able to design these lessons and present the material in order to get the students genuinely excited to learn, that just makes the subject a lot more engaging. And I really did like that exercise that I mentioned before. And that's something that I would try to want to utilize. Um, Maybe instead of having groups of teachers, I would answer the questions myself and create my own little Venn diagram in order to find what ideas or what goals I would want to have my students have in order to kind of tailor my lessons to those goals by making them engaging and effective at the same time. But I would definitely want to utilize the other teachers and ask them what their opinions and thoughts are, not just having my own answers. Yeah, did any of them stand out to you? Like some of them we've talked a bit about, but the other ones I thought were kind of intriguing, like um, involves mystery that balances competition and cooperation. I thought those were kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. No, I did really like those. And the one that you just mentioned, the involving mysteries or problems, I actually really liked that one. And it reminded me of something I actually witnessed in my observations that I just thought was really innovative for a math classroom. They actually made the math classroom like the escape the room rooms. Have you seen those? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been to two of those. Mm -hmm. So the teacher actually created all these different problems and there was a whole story behind it. They were put in this scenario and they had to escape in a certain time. And in order to escape, she got all these padlocks and all these like cryptic locks. And they had to actually use the math they were learning to solve what the passcodes were. Mm -hmm. So it involved both hands-on and mysteries and problems. And I just thought that was really cool. And it just like presented the information in a way that the students had never seen before because you never would have or even I wouldn't have connected an escape room with math, but this teacher somehow found a way to kind of marry the two together. And I just thought it was so interesting. I think with technology, you can probably make a lot of this a lot easier to do. You might not even need to get actual padlocks if you find a way. And you were the one who talked about Plicker. Mm-hmm. The idea of like using a phone to scan in something, I feel like you could all, almost find a way to have these hidden codes around class that students have to find, presumably based on some math-related puzzles they have to solve. Mm-hmm. It might be a bonus thing. Everything can't be an escape because that would wear thin as well. Yeah. But I feel like, yeah, I mean, that could be a good, great way to create a hook, which the reading talks about creating these really intriguing hooks mm-hmm. that students would be interested in. I think having these hooks, as you said, and getting the students interested, I found, at least in my opinion, I think they're really great for review or ways or to introduce a concept. The way that the one that I was just describing was more of a review because you would have had to have that prior knowledge. But if you could find or as a teacher, if I could think of ways to kind of downsize that activity in a way that hooks the students in right off the bat before the unit actually starts just to get them engaged with the unit and encourage them to want to learn about that unit. So maybe trying to think of ways to kind of find similar activities, but not to the point where they need all of that knowledge of the unit, just kind of an introduction. It just reminds me again of the Quest to Learn School, which I mentioned a while back. They're a school in New York City that's designed around games. And so what they would do is they would often start a unit with a very complex problem. And then throughout the unit, they will be working towards solving it. So just building on what we were just talking about, imagine a teacher building an escape room that requires them to be able to solve certain kinds of problems or use certain kind of equations, I don't know, um, which they might not have covered at the beginning of the class when, they, when, you know, when the teacher does the reveal. But then gradually, once they cover that, students might be like, oh, no, oh, I get it now. I, that problem could be solved this way. I, I feel like that could be kind of a fun moment for the students. Yeah, it gives them their own little aha moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that would be kind of fun to create. I'm sure someone's probably 
tried it. I feel like it would take a while to kind of refine that. It would take probably a couple of tries before you find a way that really works, but I think it would definitely be worth it in the end. Yeah, especially if this can be a collaboration between all the math teachers who could help design it. Well, going off that, actually, one of the questions that I presented was how can we design plans that meet the needs of the students and individuals as well as a collective class prior to meeting and understanding what types of learners or students are you don't know who your students are before you get them. So I just wasn't exactly sure ways in which we would do that. Like as teachers, do we just plan our lessons prior to meeting our students completely and then adjusting as we move forward and learn about our students? Are we able to make those adjustments so quickly? I actually am not entirely sure how I'm going to do that when I first become a teacher. That's a really good question. I mean, it's harder when this is the first time you ever teach. As with anything, the more practice you have, the better you get. Because at some point, you'll eventually get a sense of, especially if if your students are the same age every year, then that might give you a sense of what students tend to know or not know ahead of time. So I think the idea of having a well-designed unit plan is to have the layout in general, but then also have room to adjust within it. Yeah, and I remember the best piece of advice I got through my observations. I have one teacher. She was a very seasoned teacher. She showed me all of her binders, all of her unit plans. And she looked at me and she said, don't think I did this overnight. This has taken me years to build. She goes, but I'm constantly finding new ways to present the material. I'm constantly adjusting my lesson plans. So like you said, it's that one main concept and that one main just root of the unit and what they want the students to understand. But she's always changing the way in which she gets the students to understand. And that actually relates to another question I had. Um, I'm referencing page 192, where the text talks about the teacher designers can't fall into this trap or temptation of going back to comfortable and familiar techniques. But my question was, what if those comfortable and familiar techniques have been working? Do we just kind of adjust them and make them more relevant to the times that we're in, but keep that same idea? Or are we just constantly coming up with new and innovative ideas? I guess it would depend on what the technique is. Because it sounds like if the technique works and the student is giving positive feedback and you can see it, then I can't imagine there being a reason to change it just for the sake of being up to date. That's kind of my take on it. I feel like it would kind of depend on what exactly you mean by technique. By techniques, I just mean like the, the lessons, the units, the way in which you're presenting the material, the ways in which you're reviewing the material, mm-hmm. the ways in which you're evaluating the students on their level of understanding of the material. I mean, it's possible that an activity might lose relevance if in the real world it's something that they don't do anymore. That might be an exception. And this is not true, not just for math, but I guess any topic, if the way that the real world profession has changed the way they look at something, then that might be a good reason to change like I'm assuming like maybe in in science fields that might be more relevant like when people have a different theory or different way of teaching something that might be a reason I feel like every activity lesson unit is never perfect I feel like everything is a work in progress so maybe you don't need to change everything but you can tweak it a little bit here and there and also just going back to your earlier point when you talked about your teacher and the binder one thing I do and I imagine many teachers do is just kind of take notes on your lessons your units I have a document for every class that I, and I, if something goes well or it doesn't do well, if I come up with something, just jot it down and try to incorporate it in the next time you design it. Teachers, some teachers would keep journals, they do reflections. I don't know if you need to do anything that formal, but I do feel like we ask students to be metacognitive and reflective and I think teachers would also benefit from that. I mean, any profession would benefit from that. 
I was going to say, I feel like the exit tickets, I know you use them in our class and you allow us to provide our feedback. And I like that it's anonymous feedback as well, because then the students don't feel like they need to tailor their responses um, for with fears. I know um, I teach SAT classes on the side and my students, they get surveys where they can provide me with anonymous feedback. I always remind them that it is anonymous. So that way they're not swayed to kind of rank me well or tell me I'm doing a good job because they're afraid I won't like them. Yeah. So I feel like just allowing the students to have their feedback, being able to be heard by the teachers, just because then I feel like sometimes as a teacher, you might think it went really well, but then your students do not feel the same way. And if you're not asking them for that feedback, you have no way of knowing how the students actually truly felt about your lesson. So I feel like incorporating that was is a really good idea. Yeah, I only wish that more people filled out the exit tickets, though. I think I only get four or five every week. And I think that's the tricky thing, especially with online anonymous feedback. But yeah, I mean, any type of feedback that you let students provide will be helpful. How do you make sure your activities are not just fun and entertaining, but also engaging and educational? Going back, referencing back those questions, specifically in the text. Um, so on the bottom of page 195 and the top of page 196, the two groups again, mm-hmm. asking myself those questions, thinking first, when are our students fully engaged and when is student learning most effective? And keeping those two questions in mind while planning the lessons, but also I think coming up with those key questions before and that backwards design. Like I want to pick my goal for the students. What do I want them to get out of this lesson? What do I want my students to take away? What do I want them to think about during this lesson? And then creating it around all of that so that way I'm still figuring out okay like how am I keeping my students engaged how am I connecting it to when the students are mostly or most fully engaged excuse me but then also keeping in mind first and foremost what are the students supposed to get out of this lesson Mm -hmm. and then designing it around those questions because you can always be creative with your lessons you can always come up with fun things to do but if you don't keep those questions in mind while you're doing it I feel like it would be so easy to fall to a trap of just making it fun and we want to have fun in the classroom but without those essential questions in the back of our heads we're not going to be tailoring it to the needs of the students. The reading also mentioned something about striking a balance between pandering to their interests and having a curriculum that's overly rigid and finding the middle point where they can get something out of it, but also remain engaged. I thought that was a helpful tip. Yes, for sure. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do as a teacher. I was actually just venting to one of my friends about how so many people, whenever I say I would like to teach, they go, oh, that's good for you. It's such an easy job. But it's really not easy. You're constantly trying to find that happy medium where you want the students to enjoy what they're doing and they, you want them to have fun. You want them to be genuinely engaged, but you also need to bring yourself back and think about, okay, but I'm teaching them for a reason and I need to think of those goals as an educator. So it's really hard to find that happy medium. And sometimes it might not just be the activity, but the way you mm-hmm. try to connect to make sure those connections are explicit. Like even with the escape or the hypothetical escape room example, mm-hmm. it's I can imagine a scenario where you design a really wonderful escape room and at the end of it, students just remember the escape room without understanding or remembering that they're supposed to be learning the math behind it. Yes. You don't want the student to be so caught up in the activity that they don't see the learning underneath. Sometimes the teacher's role then is to make that explicit. I was actually going to say, I know the text, they mentioned the teacher like being a coach for the students and kind of guiding them along. So going off of that point, the teacher's job, if they're doing an activity that could 
be taken the wrong way. Like you said, like if the students are so focused on the activity, they're not focusing on the actual math or the actual subject. Mm -hmm. It should be the teacher's job to coach them along and guide them along throughout the lessons so that their minds are still on focus with the actual subject, but they're still having fun with it. The reading makes a point where they said that the teacher's role should be facilitate a coach, but also you're not completely relinquishing the teacher part. They went out of their way to say that we're not saying that there's no room for direct instruction or lecturing or anything like that. It's just hard to find a ratio because it's highly dependent on the context. And so it's not like, well, if you lecture 30% of the time and you do you know, something else for this amount of time, then your unit will automatically be fine. Sometimes you do have to lecture um, or do direct instruction, and, but then sometimes you do have to step back and let the students do their own discovering. Yeah, and I do agree with what you said. There's a place and there's a time and place for both direct instruction, but also for allowing the students to kind of have that self-discovery. Mm-hmm. But it's up to the teacher to determine which topics are better suited for direction and which ones are better suited for self-discovery. I know me personally, when I was a math student, I do love math. And I actually, funny enough, found it a little frustrating when I had to discover things for myself. And I didn't really get that until college. And at first, it was very frustrating because I had never had to do that before. And with math, I always was just told the information and then I had to replicate it. And I did like that a lot Mm. at the time. But then after being somewhat forced to discover it on my own, I do see the beauty in that as well, because I did retain some of that information a little bit more than if I was just simply told the information. But then other things I was told and I remember it to this day. So I feel like it really depends on the subject, the level that I'm teaching. Like there's a big difference in what you can have a middle school, a seventh grader who's 12 years old discover versus a 17, 18 year old senior who's taking AP calculus. The reading talked about textbooks a lot. I don't know. Do you work a lot with textbooks? I actually do not. And it's actually funny that this discussed textbooks a lot because in one of my other education classes, we just finished a whole textbook analysis. And it was such a struggle for me to find two math bo- math textbooks to even compare. Because every time I asked the teacher I was observing, they gave me such a weird look and they said textbooks. We haven't used those since 19 something. Like we really don't work with them that much. Even in college, I'll be assigned a textbook. And on day one, the teacher just says, you don't need to get it. We don't use this at all. Were you talking about high school or middle school? The textbooks that I ended up using were from middle school, but even at high school, we basically were given a textbook and they said, leave it at home. You won't touch this the whole year. So based on what the reading said, that sounds like that's good news. Yes, I definitely don't like textbooks that much. And the on page 221, the examples in the reading, I just thought they were great examples at showing how confusing math textbooks can actually be. Me personally, I don't work well with big readings. I don't work well with very wordy things and I think that's partially why I love math so much because you're just replicating and actually doing the math and you're not reading pages and pages long books you're really just getting these problems and solving them but these textbooks the words and the terminology is just so confusing and can be and can be translated so incorrectly and my favorite one was actually the one that said the paired points on a number line are the same distance from the origin but on opposite sides of the origin the origin is paired with itself And me, with my education, I understand what it means. It basically just means you have a positive and negative number. They're the same distance from the center. And the center is the same distance from itself. But for a kid or a student who's young and has never seen this terminology before, it's so easy just to get lost in it. And 
it's very hard for the students to understand that math terminology and those explanations are just so so weirdly worded and I think that's because math and English it's not always a smooth transition I know I always joke with my math students that I tutor privately I say this is math language let's just put this into like normal language Mm -hmm. and I rephrase it and I make it non-math really like I still use the math concepts but I I don't I wouldn't say the paired points are the same distance from the origin. I just would say, okay, how far away is four from zero? And they go four. I go, okay, how far is negative four from zero? Then again, they say four. And I say, okay, so they're the same distance away. And that's pretty much it. And then I say, how far is zero from zero? They say zero. I said, okay, so it's itself. There's no distance from itself. It's just its own pair alone. And they understand it better like that. But if I read them that excerpt, I I could picture all my students just giving me such a look. What resources does your school or your class use? Mm-hmm. Um, the teachers, first of all, they use the other teachers, especially the younger teachers. They ask the more seasoned teachers um, for things. So I know a lot of things get passed down. And at the school I'm currently observing at every, uh, I think it's every Wednesday, they have a subject meeting, meeting, meaning the four or five math teachers all meet and they all kind of make sure they're on the same page, that they're all on track and they kind of share what works and what doesn't work for their classrooms and they share um, their notes and their problems but then I know other teachers they turn to the internet a lot actually and there's so there are so many online forums where teachers discuss different lesson plans there's actually a website one teacher showed me where you can buy lesson plans and buy problems off of other teachers who have created them so I feel like it's more turning towards the internet than textbooks that seems problematic in a different way, though. Why should teachers spend their own money? Or is this still school paying for them? I'm assuming not. Um, the teacher did not specify. She just said, I buy them. So I assume she meant her own money. But I agree with you. Like, why should the teachers be spending their own money? But at the same time, I understand why you want to have those resources. But shouldn't it also be your job to come up with those lessons? at the same time. And I know it's very hard, especially when you've been doing it for years and years and years to constantly be creative and coming up with things. But I know there's definitely resources that are free online. I use them when I tutor. If I can't come up with my own questions, I'll just go to usually Khan Academy is a good link that I like to use. And they actually have a bunch of questions. Are they complex? Not necessarily, but do they get the job done? Yes. Since the two chapters had used a lot of math examples, and I want to ask you about what they said about math, because I was intrigued by the part on when they were talking about Euclid and the differences between axioms and theorems mm-hmm. and underlying premise of geometry, and I guess math in general, but they're talking about geometry in particular, about what are the assumptions that you have to make about, I guess, Cartesian geometry in particular, which I thought was kind of fascinating, which is something that I'd don't know if math teachers get into if when they teach geometry about the underlying assumptions that mathematics or certain mathematics like geometry has to make in order for the equations to make sense. They just talk mm-hmm. about the math content itself without the, that background information. I don't know if that would be an interesting way of getting students interested in math. I know I was interested. I'm not a math person. Um, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Beyond just doing the mathematics itself, Mm-hmm. Is there something underlying mathematics as a, um, I don't want to say philosophy, as a uh, a way of understanding the world that is intriguing for you that could potentially be something that you think students might be interested in? 
I actually never discussed it in my high school geometry class, but these assumptions were actually discussed in my college level geometry class. And we touched upon those a little bit more. And I do find it interesting as a math person, like it's kind of crazy to think, how can you just assume certain things? Like what's the difference between things that are assumed to be true, but the things that we know for a fact are true. So I do think if we could introduce those concepts at a smaller level to high school students, just to pull them in, I feel like it would be something interesting, or if I'm putting myself back a couple of years to when I first learned geometry, if my teacher was standing in front of the room, it was like, how do we know that this is true? I don't think I would have been able to answer that question. And I, I mean, granted, I am a math person, but I think anyone, if you've been learning something for so long, you've just been told it's true. And then all of a sudden somebody asks you, why is this true? I feel like that would really kind of make me think a little bit more than I had because we just learned about the math. So I think it would be really cool to implement in an earlier age just to get the students to start questioning what they're learning and just not to take everything for granted. And it would kind of spark an interest, at least for me, it would have if it was presented that way. You mentioned uh, Khan Academy earlier. And what you just said kind of reminded me of an interview I heard of him. And he's a he was a math person, but I think his training was in business. Um, maybe even actuary science, I don't know. I think it it might even be true because I think he was doing some kind of investment finance related stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was doing math tutoring on the side. And um, in the interview, he said basically that very complex mathematical and science concepts, especially things that calculus for a lot of people that is really beyond them or at least is considered very high level, um, is actually within the grasp of every person except that the only problem is that people have a lot of gaps in their knowledge and kind of like what you said about the underlying assumptions is that these different mathematical concepts and science concepts as well require you to have baseline understanding or assumption of the world. And if that's not addressed, then it becomes really hard to follow. So I thought that was an interesting point. I can see that happening. And I kind of I guess that's kind of why he was inspired to do Khan Academy, which is to fill in the blanks. You know, I totally agree. And when you just mentioned calculus, um, I actually really like that you mentioned calculus and you mentioned those gaps. And at least for me personally, I like, I love calculus. I should rephrase that because it really is a nice blend of all of the mathematics that you have learned. It's kind of like all of the math you have learned has led up to that point. That's how I kind of see calculus because it uses algebra, it uses geometry, it uses trig, it uses everything just in a new way. So I feel like some of those gaps might have been because somebody kind of shut themselves off from one type of math, but then later on would have needed it. And that's why I do enjoy Khan Academy because they do break everything down for you. I utilize more so the actual examples, but at least in my own math classes, especially in college, I have watched tons of the Khan Academy videos where they just explain everything on a very simple basis so that it's very easy to understand, not only for me, but I feel like they break it down very well that anybody who maybe doesn't have a strong math background can understand and then build up that knowledge. Yeah, and I wonder if class time is the issue, and class time is always the issue, I wonder if technology could help be a kind of a supplement of that information. If you ask students to watch a 10-minute video from Khan Academy or even maybe Mm -hmm. something you created yourself, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a high production value. It could just be you talking about something. I'm assuming math tests like don't cover these this kind of stuff or don't require you to know that information, but that information is still helpful down the road. And that could be something that could be filled out using technology that you don't have to redo the same thing over and over again, that you can just record a, a session and then kind of distribute it as needed. That might be a really kind of a good way of filling in those gaps without taking up class time. There's actually 
I'm completely blanking on the term. One of my mom's really good friends is actually an elementary school teacher locally. Mm-hmm. Do you mean They're flipped classroom? Flipsing. Yes, that's the term. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of mm-hmm. gaining traction. Just yeah, basically what it sounds like you flip the classroom and and have them do the lecturing stuff at home and then come to class ready to work on the problems. So the teacher can give them more in-depth kind of one-to-one help or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's something. That's another. That's a good idea. A lot of times when I'm going through with my tutoring, I kind of use, I call them non-math terms. So like I said before, when I read the quote from the textbook and I explained how I would explain it to another student, should, I'm just specifying as math teachers, but should we use these quote-unquote non-math terms while we're explaining and teaching math in order to introduce the subject in a more easily understood way? Or should we still use the strict math terminology, even if it means having the students remain confused and frustrated with the subject. Do you have a specific math term in mind that that might kind of be considered a math term? That Yeah, so by non-math terms, what I mean is basically just sometimes students find it really hard to remember the certain word, but they know more so what it means. They just don't remember the word or they need kind of something that's easy to remember to kind of spark their memory of the term. I know I was actually working recently with um, a sixth grade student and she's learning how to solve one-step algebra equations and her teacher is actually in touch with me and she notified me that one thing my student was struggling with was learning how to divide by a fraction so if you have one half x equals four you have to divide by one half but then dividing by one half is like multiplying by the reciprocal so it's like multiplying it by two and she couldn't remember that instead of just telling her what I did I said okay, if you divide four by one half, you get eight. If you divide eight by one half, you get 16. If you divide 16 by one half, you get 32. And then she goes, oh, you're multiplying it by two. Mm -hmm. So she understood it. I said, okay, so how can I represent two as a fraction? She goes, two over one. I said, okay, what's the relationship between one half and two over one? And she, I kind of pull from what they say. And she said, oh, it's like a flip-flop. And I said, exactly. It's a flip-flop of the fraction. It's called the reciprocal. So then I kind of intermingled the math terminology in there. So when she kept solving, I said, remember, you have to multiply it by the flip-flop. And I just kept calling it that. And she kind of did a little hand motion where she was kind of like flipping her hand Mm -hmm. to show it. And then for her, it just clicked a lot better than if I just said you have to multiply it by the reciprocal. So the math term would be reciprocal. Mm -hmm. But the actual action, the quote-unquote non-math term, is the flip-flop of the fraction. I think that would help, especially if the student comes up with a system that works for them, whatever they want to come up with, without confusing them with the teacher's own analogy. I also had a terrible flashback to trigonometry, where isn't there some kind of, either it's a mnemonic device or some kind of acronym for sine, cosine, tangent, and then the reverse of it. What is it called? SOHCAHTOA. So it's S-O-H. SOHCAHTOA. C-A-H-T-O-A. Sounds like a lost colony. (laughs) <laughs> I know it sounds it sounds very weird I mean it helps with the remembering it doesn't necessarily help with remembering the concept unfortunately that's a concept that I don't remember anymore I remember I remember trigonometry I don't remember the uh the other part I can look it up I'll look at Khan Academy or something <laughs> yeah I think sometimes it's hard because people remember the acronym but then they have no idea what it means so I remember uh what was the one recently some of my students, they'll be like, oh, I learned this. And they'll give the acronym. I'm like, great. So what do you use it for? And they go, I have no idea. They just know the acronym, but then they have no idea how to implement it. And 
sometimes too when I'm teaching my SAT classes that happens. I know the acronym that we use for the exponent rules is called MADSPUM and they'll remember. Is it the order of, of doing? Not the order of operations. Oper- that one's PEMDAS, PEMDAS. which everyone okay. remembers. MADSPUM is um, the exponent rule. So if you're multiplying two numbers with the same base that have exponents, so it's M, mm-hmm. you add the exponents, so A. Then if you're dividing, right. so the D and MAD, you're subtracting, so that's the S. Okay. And then if it's power to a power, you multiply the powers. It's so of- it's like easy to remember, but then you have to know what everything means. It's kind of coming back to me a little bit. With your point about using non-math terms, this would apply to other content areas as well, where every subject would have its own jargon, and it helps to unpack, or at least just to make sure that the jargon is accessible early on. Like, I guess if you're doing language arts, you kind of have to use the terms protagonist, antagonist, and can't dispense with them completely, but it helps to just to say that's the main character, you know? Um, yes, for sure. Just simplifying it a little bit. And I feel like when the students come up with it themselves, it makes it easier to remember. Yeah. I do feel like that's an advantage, at least that I have with the one-on-one tutoring, because I'm only with one student at a time. I can tailor the non-math terms to that student based on the language that they use. So I'm trying to think of how I can implement that same idea or a similar idea, but with a class of 20 to 25 instead. I like how the book on page 203 to 204, they talked about how students help the teachers shape essential questions. I thought that was an interesting exercise, and I was wondering what you thought of that. I actually agreed with you uh, that you liked how they gave the examples. It gave the students a reason to pay attention to the subject and think deeply about it, and it connects to what we were just talking about of the students coming up with their own jargon. Mm -hmm. If the students are the ones creating these questions, they... I would hope would be creating questions that they're curious about and that they would like to learn about. So that way it's not just a teacher say asking them a question and they have no idea how to answer it or they're like, why do I care about this question? Since they're the ones creating it and using their own minds and listening to what their peers have to say, mm-hmm. it would make them want to think a little bit more deeply about it because it's not too, and I know the text used the word too preachy mm-hmm. by the teacher. I feel like oftentimes when you're teaching a subject, you obviously love that subject mm-hmm. and you want everyone else to love that subject, but you also need to understand that if you are standing up there, just being, if, in my example, when I stand up there and I'm like, math is great, you should all love math, I love math, let's all love math, these kids are kind of like, whoa, slow down, like, I don't like math as much as you do. <laughs> so I think it's nice that they're letting the students kind of take charge in that way and not take over the classroom, but really help the teacher shape the questions in a way that A, is able to be understood by the students, but also be student-driven in the sense that they're the ones that are more preachy instead of me being like, you have to like math because I do. It's them saying, here's what I'm interested in learning about right now. Mm. Let's figure out why it happened. So let's figure out the meaning behind all of this. I feel like if students are, I like when students have the freedom to come up with stuff, but at least in one or actually a few classes I've had when I give the students the freedom to choose or the freedom to kind of come up with their own questions. They can get a little wild and get like very excited, which I love the energy, but they need to also keep it relevant and realize they're still in the classroom. They're still learning, but providing those suggestions without getting absolutely wild and taking over, so to speak. But I do love how you're kind of having the students drive the lesson. Do you think that becomes counterproductive when you give them too much choice? I think yes, and I know um, specifically in the voice threads, I really like how Brittany discusses how she gives the students options. So like she'll pick maybe two options that she knows 
are capable capable of being done and that she's able to teach or she's able to do as a review and then she'll give the students not like what do we want to do today do you want to do this today or do you want to do this tomorrow do the other thing today Mm -hmm. giving them they're still getting that choice but the choice is kind of limited into the where the teacher is still running the classroom but the students have some say and some input so I think if they're totally let off on their own and totally let just completely running the classroom by themselves, I think it can be counterproductive. But if you're kind of still having your teacher role, but allowing the students to implement their ideas, it can be great. Yeah, I mean, the UDL reading had mentioned something like that, where some students do well with having choice, some people, some students don't. Mm-hmm. And it was recommending that teachers should have the flexibilities, knowing what to give the student, which I always found it to be a little bit hard to properly operationalize, because I I feel like if I was to say, okay, so you, some of you, you can choose between these two op projects and you three, you have to do this one. <laughs> and I yes. feel like even if that is genuinely best for them, I feel like that would come across as unfair. So I don't know, at least from like a higher ed perspective, I'm not sure how that would be properly implemented. It also is an issue if you present too much choice. And uh, the first thing I thought of when we started talking about this was the paradox of choice when mm-hmm. you're given all these options and makes it impossible to make a decision. Yeah. So I feel like that could also be like some students, maybe if they're given so many options, they kind of freak out a little bit because they're like, what do I choose? Do I want this? But I also like this. But what if I choose one and I want the other one? Yeah. So I feel like in that sense, it's good when they're kind of told what they're going to be doing. So maybe just like limiting the options to two. Mm. That way it's just one or the other. So that way the students are still given that opportunity, but then they're not overwhelmed with information and they're not overwhelmed with all those choices. Mm. But again, like you said, if you're kind of pointing at one group and saying, here, you guys get to choose and the other group, you're like, but you don't. I'm telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. It comes across a little strange, um, especially in the student's eyes. They'd be like, well, why are they getting a choice if we're not? Or the opposite, why are they being told that we have to figure out what we're doing? Yeah. So I'm trying to think of a way that you could kind of, I guess maybe in the beginning of the year, you could kind of give out almost like a survey to your students to kind of get a sense of how they are as students and understand which students like more direction, which students like more freedom. And maybe you could give them the option, like the option would either be your options are you get to choose between two or your other option is you're doing this one and then let the students choose, I guess. Mm. But that's still a choice. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's to have to make a choice about making choices. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Something to think about. Um, I thought on page 243, they were talking about guidelines to good curriculum design, I guess. And I was wondering, what do you think of them? Do you feel like they resonated with you or something? was something missing? Well, the one that I had the strongest reaction to was the, I think it was the, yeah, the second to last bullet point that said, use the textbook as a resource, not the syllabus. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing my notes, um, I actually put that in all caps. I 100% agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the one because the readings did focus a lot around textbooks and not following the textbook to a T. Um you're not supposed to just explain the textbook. You're not supposed to just assign the students to read and expect them to know it. You're supposed to use it to refer to mm-hmm. if it helps the learners understand something more easily. I liked how it also mentioned, like, if you're using the textbook, if you make the textbook the course, you're going to over-lecture. And I think it's going to be easy to fall into that trap. And I know, especially we as teachers, we like to talk. Um, <laughs> we like to be in front of a group of students. We like to have, be able to go off 
as we feel the need to, but I think it's very hard to rein ourselves in to have the students figure things out for themselves in order for the information to stay with them for a long time and really resonate with them. So I think that if you use the textbook to refer to, it's more beneficial than if you're just directly reading from the textbook or if you're just having them read and just do problems. So that was the one that really resonated the most with me. The other ones that I actually really liked, the build-in pre- and post-reflection and metacognitive opportunities. Mm. So the first thing I thought of before I even read the description, I said, oh, a do now and an exit ticket. Those are the two things I immediately thought of and just a way that the students can kind of have this pre-assessment and see like what they already know of the new topic based on what they have learned and using their prior knowledge and applying it. And then at the end, having that opportunity to think about what they were taught and think about how they were thinking of the material and provide their own reflection themselves. And I know something that um, I'm... I've discussed in my voice threads that I would like to implement aside from these reflections is also having the students maybe as a pre-reflection set goals for themselves academically so that they're intrinsically motivated throughout the unit to learn. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, maybe seeing on their own, like going through a checklist and being like, did I meet the goals that I set for myself for this? So not even just a daily do now an exit ticket, but even like a unit wide, what are your goals? Did I meet my goals? Something that struck me was the uh, second bullet point. The distinguished just in time from just in case, which mm-hmm. I guess it was for me, it was because with the online class, it's a little bit harder to do just in time in the sense that when a student is maybe displaying a misconception, let's say it's hard to jump in at that moment because that could have been yesterday evening when they recorded it. And yes. um, so that's a little bit tricky. Usually that's when I find ways of either replying, hoping that they will listen to my comment or kind of do the wrap up, which is why I switched it around just to make sure that maybe more people will hear it. But I did find that as a general concept to be important, you know, the idea of resisting front loading and not overwhelm the students with things, but then jump in when necessary, which goes goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the coaching part. I did like that bullet point as well, because... Like I said before, it's so easy for teachers to kind of just go off and just keep talking and keep lecturing because as a teacher, we do like being in front of the classroom. It's very hard to rein it in. So keeping it in mind that you can't just give the students an overload of information because they won't retain it as well as if they get a little bit of information and then work on the key, like work on discovering or reading into or researching the key information with the teacher there as a coach, as a cheerleader, kind of directing them in the right place but not explicitly telling them everything so the last thing i wanted to talk about was figure 10.3 where the authors listed different ways to check for understanding i was wondering what you thought of them so i actually loved number two the hand signals and asking the students to kind of display a hand signal to show what their understanding of the concept is so like a thumbs up was i understand a thumbs down is i don't understand yet and wave hand is i'm not completely sure about something And actually something else that I've contemplated with, aside from hand signals, I know for me at least, um, when I'm in front of a classroom, it's hard for me to really notice unless they're holding their hands up high. But a fear of mine for my students is maybe they're embarrassed to admit that they don't understand it um, by like throwing their hand up with a thumbs down. Some students don't care, but some students might be a little embarrassed. Um, So something that I've contemplated using instead of the hand signals is maybe having like a red, green, or yellow index card and they can kind of just keep it on their desk. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm walking around the room, I can kind of see what their index card level is mm-hmm. um so that's while they're working but the only downside to that is that i wouldn't be able to see that during the lesson while i'm instructing in the front of the room 
mm. unless it's kind of a folded in- index card where they can put it on their desk. Maybe if it's like the back side of the index card is black, so nobody else can see what it is, but then the front of it is colored, so then I can see what it is. Mm. Um, that way there's some sort of privacy going along with that. Yeah. But I did like that because it allows the teacher to check in during the lesson and it allows the teacher to see which students are going are doing well, which students are rolling with it they understand and then which students really need a little bit more instruction or a little bit more guidance going through Mm -hmm. um i also like the index card summary and questions Mm. because it allowed the students to have like a small mini level metacognitive reflection while also allowing them to present the ideas that are still confusing to them so it's giving the students the ability to do both at the same time and then it's also giving the teacher almost like a compiled list of what are some common themes that are confusing the students. Like what can they really not reteach, but maybe re-review or kind of present the information in a different way. Because I feel like a lot of times, especially in math, like there's kind of trends where students don't understand material. So that would give the teacher the opportunity to tailor their lesson based on the needs of the students. And it's also not really wasting class time because the teacher could just collect them at the end and go through them during their off periods or go through them after school. I, on the other side, did not really like number three and number five, the one-minute essay and the analogy prompt. I just think... Those won't be very helpful in math anyway. That's exactly what I was <laughs> going to say. <laughs> math is more learning by doing, so it's kind of hard to write a little essay about the topic you've learned. Um, but I did also love the question box or the question board because, again, it keeps that student privacy. Yeah. So they're not admitting to their peers that they're confused, but they're admitting to the teacher... And again, it would allow the teacher to see trends in where students are doing really well, but also where students are not doing as well. And then they can tailor the lesson accordingly and kind of adjust as needed. And then the visual representation, I like that because I my learning preference is very visual, but I could see why students might not enjoy that if that's not their preference. Yeah. Or if maybe the students don't understand as well, it might be a little disheartening yeah if they're not really able to contribute so i would probably stay away from that one and keep to the ones that still allow for that student privacy or you can give them a like a choice between six and three if someone prefers to write it versus Mm -hmm. someone who prefers to visualize it all of these things regardless of what content area you're teaching they sound really good and they sound like teachers should be using at least one of them frequently Mm -hmm. do you ever and this is going to be my pre-reading question there are often times when things that our teachers trying to do for students that are generally for information gathering. But I can imagine students maybe either not taking it seriously or resenting it or finding it boring or just not getting that this is helpful and that it's not busy work. And I was wondering, how do you mitigate that? How do you get students to do these things seriously without it being not taken seriously? And you're talking about the techniques that we were just discussing? Yeah, just in general, because these are designed to be really quick, right? Like the aha moment would be a a version of this. But I was wondering, like, do the students understand the purpose of it or whether they would just do it because they know they need to do it, but not really reflect on what did they not understand? I feel like that also comes with the age group. I know, at least with my observations, what I've seen is that Funny enough, the younger students, meaning like the early middle school age, they're still pretty motivated to learn and they still enjoy school and they try. Whereas as you get older and older, kind of senioritis almost kicks in and the students care a little bit less and less, especially when they already get into college. That's a big time where I think students are totally unmotivated because they're like, oh, I already got in. What's the point? Mm. So that's why I would like to implement having the students setting their own academic goals. So then it's not 
me telling them what their goals should be. It's like they're setting up their goals and they're the ones who kind of have to work on, I don't want to say not letting themselves down, but if they're the ones creating these goals, it's not like it's somebody else motivating them. It makes it a little bit more self-motivating, but I can also see how students wouldn't even take the goals seriously. So something that I really try to do, and this is my philosophy of education, is really I like to get to know my students as individuals as opposed to just a collective unit. And I feel at least I think that stems from me being a private tutor in the sense that with the student sees that I genuinely care about their preferences and I care about them as students and as people and I really do I am their biggest cheerleader above anything else like I do genuinely want to see them succeed Mm -hmm. and I feel like when I create that almost bond with the students they get a little bit more motivated so of course all my math students don't really like math they have a math tutor because they struggle Mm -hmm. but I kind of use that and I cheer them on and I'm like look I know you can do this like I genuinely believe in you but I also talk to them too like I use the beginning to get to know them a little bit and I keep up with their lives I'm like okay so how is you mentioned this last week how is it going now Mm -hmm. and by creating that bond it makes them a little bit more willing to learn Mm -hmm. so that's just me personally what I would like to implement I mean everybody else has a completely different style of teaching but for me and my philosophy that's what I would utilize to get the students motivated that sounds really good (laughs) thank you well that about wraps up this episode We don't have a new one scheduled next week, but the week after we'll be talking more specifically about the design process. I want to thank you, Alessia, for being our guest this week. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great weekend. You as well. Bye. Bye.